You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. I'm in studio with Lucas Shaw, who is king of all media at Bloomberg News. Welcome, Lucas. I feel like more of a of a prince than a king. I don't okay, think I'm, you're a prince. I'm at king status. You break stories all the time. You have an awesome newsletter called Screen Time. You have a conference coming this fall. Congratulations. Thank you. On your media conference. He said slightly jealously. <laughs> Did, um, well, I'm, I mean, you, you've done it. Do you have a podcast yet? No, I do no. not. Okay. We'll, we'll have a discussion about that. Um, you are in town in studio um, at Vox Media because it's Upfront Week. Weeks? Week. Weeks, but weeks. it used to feel like weeks because there's sort of two weeks of new fronts and then one week of upfronts, and the excitement around new fronts has largely dwindled in part because YouTube, and, which is like the biggest player, moved to upfronts week with all the The upfronts are what used to be the biggest week in the TV industry. I think they maybe still are. Um, for people who've just shown up to this podcast and don't know what the upfronts are, tell them what they are supposed to be. We're going to have a conversation about TV in general. We're going to talk about movies and writer's strike. Um, but we're going to spend a lot of time talking about TV because you're here to talk about TV. Uh, the upfronts are when the TV networks pitch advertisers on their upcoming programming. So it'll be, you know, CBS talking about all the great new, you know, procedurals coming to CBS. It'll be Disney talking about new projects on ABC and now FX and other networks. YouTube has crashed the party to talk about how great it is. But it, it's historically been important because it's when you would find out about all the new shows. Right. If you're a consumer, you might hear about it because this is – in the spring, you're going to find out what the networks are going to air in the fall. And they're telling that to the advertisers to say, buy airtime for this new show Lost or Desperate Housewives or uh, one at one new front side – one up front I went to was Jeff Zucker showing off uh, the sequel to Friends called Joey. Matthew up, LeBlanc. It, it existed. Um, uh, and the idea and, was and, and you have all the star power. And so you have you have right. all these celebrities that lend, you know, a, a little sizzle to the room and try to charm these advertisers the, into opening their wallets. And the idea was to get the advertisers to commit to spending a lot of money over the next year in advance, i.e. up front. So first of all, does that business still exist? Are advertisers committing lots of money to TV networks in advance up front, or has that changed? It does still exist. They commit billions of dollars in the upfront marketplace. I, I think the, the majority of money is still committed ahead of time, at least for certain linear TV networks. A lot of people in the media industry or even the casual listener probably listens to that and doesn't really understand why it still exists. For one, the fall is no longer the only time new programming is released. You know, Netflix and Amazon and all these streaming services are releasing shows year round. And a lot of advertising sales and transactions are done throughout the course of the year. Now on TV, that's sort of what's known as the scatter market. But right, so I, I, I agreed to spend this many billion in advance, but turns out I have more money to, to deploy and come next fall, we'll talk about what else I want to spend it on. Correct. Or there's new inventory that these networks create because they come up with a show or because something is over-delivering and they want to sell that. So yes, 
despite the fact that you'd think that transactions can happen anytime and shows debut anytime, a significant portion of the money spent on TV advertising is all done starting this week. And these used to be super lavish events. They were really big presentations. Uh, networks like NBC would have all of their, you know, Seth Meyers and whoever do huge presentations and bring out all their cast members and song and dance. They would have big lavish parties where the the talent would mingle with the ad buyers, so you could get a, you could rub shoulders. A lot of that doesn't happen, or it's been scaled down, or it's virtual. It felt like an anachronism back in 2007, 2008, uh, the time that we had a last writer's strike. People were vowing to get rid of it then. They vowed to get rid of it during various recessions, during COVID. It's 2023. It's still happening. Why Why does this gathering still exist? Well, it's interesting you brought up the writer's strike in 2007, 2008. I assume you want to get there, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump ahead now just because one of the weird things underlining this whole week is going to be that the writers are striking. So all these networks have shows that, one, they can't talk about a lot of scripted shows because they have no guarantee that they're going to be able to produce them. They're probably going to be boycotts or protests at a lot of these presentations. Netflix, which was supposed to have its first in-person upfront ever because it just introduced its advertising service, scaled back to virtual. There was some reporting so they get, they get insinuation. They, they don't have a writer uh, picket line people have to cross. Correct. And so that they don't have people physically outside of their event saying, hey, Netflix, you're yep. responsible mm -hmm. for us not getting paid. I mean, the, the answer to your initial question is what we had what we had just been talking about, which is they still exist because of inertia, because of there's just a way of doing things and because the marketplace has developed in a way such that how media companies sell advertising for their TV shows. And they it, it's proven very effective as sort of a gathering mechanism to get all these people in one place, say this is what we have coming, kind of force deals to happen. And the premise of the upfronts in theory was we're going to show you our programming. First of all, we're going to tell you what we have. Then we're going to show you bits of it. And you can decide assembled ad buyers by, by, by seeing a sizzle reel or clips or in the case of Joey, Jeff Zucker was so proud of it. He showed the entire first episode, the entire pilot episode to a just stock silent crowd. I remember where I saw that. Anyway, it doesn't matter. And and the premise was, and then we're going to go in a back room and over the next few weeks negotiate with you about how much you're going to spend. And there'd be all kinds of spin about the reporting there. But the idea that this, this was supposed to be a make or break time for TV, which is where I started this conversation. Is it still or, or are the stakes lower now? Um, does it not – is no one really pretending that whatever NBC is showing, I think, as we're speaking right now, is really going to determine the, the fortunes of that company over the next year? I actually think it still matters a lot. I mean, so Warner Brothers Discovery is presenting on Wednesday. I'm not sure when this is going up, but Wednesday, May 17th. Yeah, we're speaking Monday. I think you're going to hear this either today or, or on Tuesday. And You get to do time travel with this podcast. And they need to sell a lot of advertising. I mean, if you look at what's happened with these media companies, the advertising market in general has been seen as somewhat soft. That's particularly so for TV companies. And that has caused them to cut spending in material ways, which then influences not just what people are going to see on broadcast TV, but it means the amount of money going to Max, their soon-to-be-renamed streaming service, will be less if they can't sell a bunch of advertising. You know, the TV business has been you know, remarkably stable, or at least I should say the TV advertising sales have been remarkably stable while the audience has shriveled. So as anybody probably knows by this point, the audience for live TV has been in decline for at least a decade. 
And I mean, a lot of these networks have lost, you know, two thirds to three quarters of their audience. Now they'll say, we still get them on demand. We, we, our audience for these shows is bigger than it's ever been. They're just not watching it live. That's fine. It's not measured as effectively. They can't monetize a lot of it as effectively. All that being said, they still make about as much money from t- advertising as they did a few years ago because they've been able to charge higher and higher prices for smaller and smaller audiences. Now, there's an assumption that eventually the bottom is going to fall out of that market and they need to try to transition that money over to these new streaming services, which is why over the last few years, you've seen media companies either buy these free ad-supported streaming services, create advertising tiers. The Plutos, the Tubi. Yeah, the free ones are Pluto, which is owned by Paramount, Tubi, which is owned by Fox. Roku has its kind of its Roku channel. There's Zumo. You know, Warner Brothers Discovery says it's going to launch one. Netflix says it's going to launch one. And then there's the paid ad tiers of HBO Max, Disney+, Netflix, Peacock, Hulu, and the like. Another part of the the sort of pageantry of this stuff is executives from these companies appearing on stage in various roles. Um, and there's been a lot of turmoil in in network TV uh, executive land. A year ago, Bob Chapek was running Disney. Now Bob Iger is. A few months ago, Jeff Schell was running NBC Universal. He is no longer because of what he's called a consensual affair with someone who worked at uh, CNBC. As His of- top ad sales rep, who for years was killing the digital companies for not being trustworthy is now running Twitter. You got it. Linda Yaccarino, who might be the only only TV ad exec that most people in media could name, um, is no longer a TV ad exec. She's now going to be uh, Elon's CEO of Twitter. We can have an over-under on how long that lasts. Does it matter to the ad buyers that there's this turmoil that Linda Yaccarino won't be on stage or in the end does it – they're just buying based on whatever their clients have told them they want to spend and they're just distributing it. It doesn't really matter whether Jeff Shell is there or Les Moonves is no longer running CBS. Does does that part not matter as much to the people who spend money as to the executives themselves? The ad sales executive, someone like Lindy Acarino, I think does matter because advertising, like so many other businesses, is relationship-based. And so if you have years of relationships with this one person and trust in all those things, she may be able to talk you into doing something that you otherwise would not. And again, just to, just to reiterate this, she was planning on running the NBC upfront today, the one that's going on right now. And then Elon Musk on Thursday said, I've got a new CEO and it's a woman and she's going to start in six weeks. And everyone deduced pretty much immediately it was Linda Yaccarino, which meant she could no longer do that. Whether he was intentionally forcing her out of that job or didn't know it was going to happen, amazing either way. But sorry. <laughs> um, back back to what you were telling about why it matters that she is no longer running that sales um, process. Today. But I don't know that it matters that Jeff Shell is not there. Mm-hmm. I don't think he really mattered to the advertising community in quite the same way. The, the Chapek to Iger change, I think, uh, only matters insofar as it's symbi- if there's greater confidence about Disney under Iger than under Chapek, it means that whatever share of those advertising dollars that Disney was going to get could go up, right? I mean, you're, you're, in your question, there was sort of this assumption or insinuation that there was sort of a fixed amount of money that was going to go to this and it and that's true but the big question is sort of how does that get split up right mm-hmm. if i'm at you know some big cpg company and or an advertising agency representing all these different marketers and i say okay i have 8 billion dollars to spend this year on tv how i split that up amongst the different players is very significant to them 
for more than a decade, I think. I'm not sh- exactly sure. Um, I can fact check myself later. YouTube has been trying to break into this. All, all the digital players have been trying to break into this. A lot of them have fallen off. Vice has formally filed for bankruptcy. We don't need to go through a digital media uh, graveyard because we just did that a couple weeks ago on this show. But YouTube is sticking it out, and they're, they, they used to be sort of in their own separate week, the digital week. Now they are front and center along with the broadcasters. It seems like through just sort of sheer force of will and, and user habit, that their pitch, which is, hey, people are watching YouTube. They're spending an enormous enormous amount of time watching YouTube. You, the TV advertiser, should take note of that and move your money over to YouTube. It seems like that is actually happening. Well, not only is YouTube crashing the party or has it really crashed the party with the week of TV upfronts, but I believe, and I'll have to double check, it has taken the location this year that was historically Disney's location, which is in in its own way somewhat symbolic. Uh, which is uh, which is Lincoln Center. Yeah, I mean, YouTube, I think for the longest time, its revenue was going up and up and up, but people saw it as something that you watched on laptops and phones and yep. tablets. But probably the number one screen in the US for YouTube now in terms of watch time is TV because you have people who just sit at home and open the app and watch mm-hmm. it there. Which was always their dream. Right. And they tried all these different ways to make it happen. They tried devices. They tried to spend money to create TV-like programming. That didn't work. Now it's finally working and it's just because people are used to consuming YouTube on different screens and now they're watching the same kind of YouTube videos they watch on their phone and their laptop on a TV. And it's a big deal for them because I would talk to executives at YouTube and Google who would say that, you know, even when their numbers were going up like, you know, 50 or 60%, that they were under a lot of pressure to have more of that money basically be coming from the TV bucket because mm-hmm. they wanted to, you know, kill, for lack of a better word, the networks. They wanted to prove that, you know, YouTube is now big because people spend more time watching YouTube on a television than they spend watching any network other than sometimes Netflix. And Netflix doesn't have ads in most of that viewing. So it would stand to reason that they should be able to take over a bunch of that TV viewing. But there are a lot of people who still just this gets into sort of how ads are bought and sold. But a lot of those agencies still and and companies do not put YouTube in sort of the you, the TV or premium video bucket. It's in a different thing. And YouTube wants more of that money to bleed mm-hmm. over them. And it it seems to be starting to happen. Although YouTube, like a lot of these companies, has had a bit of a rocky you know six to twelve months. Yeah, I'm really curious to go this year because for years the YouTube pitch to advertisers was we don't look like TV um, but we're we're taking all the time Um, you should come to us a lot of times it'd be this is a way to reach young disaffected viewers people who used to watch TV were the plucky underdogs I'm wondering especially since they've got a new CEO this year Neil Mohan whether they just say nope we're here we're not apologizing for it. This is this is just television. It just happens to be coming from YouTube instead of NBC. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think. So, I went their event last year. They did it at a at like the Lion King Theater. I want to say or they did it at some Broadway theater. And they, that's where Disney used to do theirs. By the yeah, way. well, Disney Disney would have or or ESPN would have the one at the Lion King okay. Theater, the Minskoff. I want to say, but you're right that YouTube's pitch was definitely always we're different from this, but better basically because this is where culture is going. This is where young mm-hmm. people are. And I assume now they can just say that, you know, everybody watches YouTube and, oh, by the way, everybody watches YouTube on a TV and trot out some of the stats like the one I mentioned where they can say, you know, you think that CBS or ESPN or these other networks are really big, but we account for more viewing on TVs than these two networks put together. 
they also seem to have gone through the gauntlet of, we you know, we've got a lot of beheading videos or whatever, whatever unpleasantness uh, someone has found on our stuff, but we're really trying to stamp that stuff out and don't worry about it. And here's some clean, well-lit space. Is that still a concern for a TV ad buyer? Because that is still one of the big TV ad pitches is don't worry, you're not going to see any beheading videos or anything gross on our networks. That's because we program our networks. We're not, we're not programmed by an algorithm. Yeah, I mean, I think brand safety, as it was sort of the the, fra- the catch-all yeah. phrase that that got used for that, is still a concern on any of these UGC or user-generated content platforms, right? Whether it's YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, there's so much, so many photos, videos, whatever it is, being uploaded every minute. There's no way for these platforms to review it all. In fact, they don't really review it all before it goes up. They they have robots essentially or computers screen most of yep. it and those things are fallible and so there's always going to be some the risk that an advertisement appears next to something that it shouldn't but the concern about it is nowhere near as high right now as it felt sort of three to five years ago because back then you know people in the press were finding a lot of problems and advertisers were finding problems so then these companies invested a considerable amount of money in trying to sort of clean up their platforms. So while they're still not perfect, I think they're, they're some of them are a lot better. I mean, TikTok is a little bit of an unknown, <laughs> but it feels like YouTube is seen as a pretty safe place to do business. TikTok does not have an upfront. TikTok does not have an upfront. That is true. I want, I'm curious to see whether they have one next year, if they're still around next year, or at least available in the US next year. I think they will be. We'll be right back after a word from a sponsor. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And we're back. You mentioned the writer's strike. Let's talk about the writer's strike. I think we're into week three of it. Lots of press about the writer's strike. Lots of social media, mostly from writers and people who are um, sympathetic to the writers about the strike. Can you succinctly explain the the main issue that has created the strike? Is there one main issue or are there multiple? Oh, the main issue is that in the transition from linear TV to streaming, writers feel as though they are being asked to work more to get paid less and have less control and visibility both into sort of how and what they're paid and into the very projects that they make, you know, spending less time on set, things like that. So it's about money. Writers would like more. Always money. The, the people who pay them would like to pay them less. Pretty pretty straightforward. For years, I had people come into the studio and we'd talk about their new project that was going up on Amazon or Apple or Netflix. I would always say to them, 
Do you feel like there's a window right now where all this money is available to make all this content and you should hurry up and try to make as much as possible? And they would generally say either no or I don't think about that. Clearly, that window has now closed. But during that window, lots and lots and lots of programming got made. So there was lots more work available. And I haven't crunched the numbers. Maybe you have. I would assume even in a, re uh, in a period of retraction, which we're in now, there's still way more content being made, more shows being made. Isn't there more work available for the writers? So even if individual writers are getting paid less, aren't getting the deals they would like, that there's more work available for more people? Yes. But while the number of shows being produced has gone way up, most of those new shows have shorter seasons. Mm -hmm. So the number of episodes has not gone up as much, and writers do get paid extra money or a considerable amount of money if they actually get credited on an episode. So that's a big deal. And this, even though the seasons are shorter, they are often asked to work as much. And so they're oftentimes, again, doing, you know, as much, if not more work than they did before, often getting paid less. Has the pool of writers increased, though? Uh, I have to think so. I don't know if I've seen – I'd have to look to see what the guild says in terms of – Because most people who are writers in Hollywood aren't writing, right? A lot of members of the Writers Guild are not writing and that is one of the common criticisms or complaints from the studio side, from certain producers, which is that you have all of these people who are just sort of disaffected who – because they have nothing better to do, essentially, are picking a fight. And it's also the nature of writing, right? Like you're, the work is sporadic. So even if you are doing well, you might only be working for certain periods during a year. Correct. And there, and that's for a very small number of people who are doing well. Yes. And what happened before was, I think also what changed is if you got one of those rare jobs before, if you got a job on a broadcast sitcom, there were all these episodes, you were in a room for a long time, those shows tended to last a reasonable amount of time. There was just sort of a perception They would go of, into syndication, correct. which would then generate money and almost in perpetuity. There was a perception of stability, and then if you got a couple of those jobs in your life, you could sort of, you were set. And now I think there's a feeling that writing for streaming and all that feels more and more sort of like the gig work that has infused so many aspects of society. And so they're looking for certain protections. But yeah, to your initial question, there is a certain irony in the fact that there's been this explosion in TV output. It seemed like a great time to be a creative person. And yet the writers are saying that it wasn't as great as everyone thought it was. Yeah, I guess that's one of my questions, which is, is it is it that we overestimated how good a time it was for writers or it really was a good time for writers and now it's going to be less good, but it might still be better than it was in 1997. I think it was a really good time to get something made, right? Like you just had more off the wall ideas. It, 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 uh, all these new streaming services were willing to take risks on relatively unproven writers mm -hmm. in a way that they would not have before. So I think that's very that was very exciting and important. There was also, because so much was being made, there wasn't really the, the infrastructure or the system to advance those people and help them develop, perhaps, in the way that there were. You know, you had a lot of – the showrunner who's the person in charge of running the show, you know, when you went from, I don't know, 150 shows like 15 years ago to 500-plus scripted shows that there are now, it's not like over that time you had that many more capable showrunners that popped up. And so you had a lot of people being asked to do do jobs that they weren't ready for. You also had certain habits develop uh, where, okay, maybe you'd write a show way in advance uh, and then the writer 
a lot of time with these streaming services, they wouldn't put the writer on set. So that writer wouldn't sort of learn how to do the production job, which could then lead to them being a showrunner. You know, Hollywood, like a lot of other businesses, runs on an apprenticeship model. And I think some of those parts of the system just broke down during that explosion. So the focus on on the strife here, the conflict is streaming. You mentioned Netflix or the boogeyman because they ushered this this era in. So streaming is one part of it, right? The streaming era economics are different. At the same time, conventional TV, like we were mentioning before, is is also pulling back, right? The syndication market that gave a very, very small number of people, but still some people, enormous amounts of money. The reason Larry David is a famous rich guy who can make a show about himself being a famous rich guy is he created Seinfeld, um, co-created Seinfeld, and that made him a gazillion dollars. And there's other versions of that. Uh, and there's people who just were lucky to write on one of those shows and also are set for life. That market of syndication is is all but gone. Not entirely gone, but going and away. And it may it may be coming back in a little way. Okay. <laughs> it may be coming back. But that 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 marketplace yeah. does not exist. And then just overall TV, right? Just cable TV distribution numbers go down and down every year. Because yeah, cable people... networks investing less and less in programming because they don't have money. Right. You know. So so are, here's I'm, I'm semi playing devil's devil's advocate, but I, I'm curious because this doesn't often get represented in the coverage that I see. Is is it fair to argue the writers want the clock turned back to a different time, and that is not realistic? What is or another way of putting it that's less rude? What's a realistic ask on the behalf of the writers since they can't change the world? So to the rude question, uh, your words, not mine. I would say. Yeah, there's a de- there's a degree to which the writers seem to be asking for a return to the way things were, which is not going to happen, as opposed to trying to make the best of the current situation. Now, before getting into what that current situation could be, I would say that there is a chance. I don't think you're going to go back to the way things were, but if the writers were able to effectively align with the Directors Guild, which is up for negotiation now, the Actors Guild, which is up for negotiation now, and they all sort of banded banded arms in a way that you know wouldn't get them in trouble with the government for you know whatever reason, um, they could try to force a wholesale like rethinking of certain tenets of modern TV business. Because like one of the things that none of them like is how little transparency there is around data. Mm-hmm. That none of these streaming services fully release viewership in the way that TV networks used to. And it's really unfair to them, they believe, to not know because you know it, it affects their ability to negotiate. It, it, and I can't assess- negotiate with you because I can't tell you how valuable my show is Correct. to you. You know I don't. And I think you and I as as journalists would also love if these media companies were more transparent about their viewership. We've gotten some. We get, you know, Netflix has its top 10 lists and Nielsen publishes a weekly list of the 10 most popular shows. And it's, it's little things that definitely help. I find it highly unlikely that any of these companies are going to suddenly release a ton of data unless there was such a shock to the system where they felt like they had to. Now, I still think that's unlikely, highly unlikely. The more likely outcome and the things that people can ask for are, you know, the one of the things that needs to be sorted through is the residuals uh, issue. So you brought up syndication a bunch. Residuals are what you get paid when a show gets syndicated, or I should say when a show gets re-aired, basically. You know, you used to be you got paid for a certain amount of money for when the sh- you know the first airing of the show, and then any time it was re-aired after that, you got paid Because it generated money. more money and you got a little piece of that. Correct. Streaming has warped that a little bit because it's not like 
there's no live aspect in most of these big streaming services. So you can sort of watch it at any point. So they just like worked out a residuals formula. It had less to do with, you know, the secondary licensing and more to do with, you know, just getting paid and, more because these things live on a platform right. for a and second. And initially time. Netflix said we there is no – when Netflix sort of broke this open and said we're going to make our own content, we're going to make a house of cards, we're not going to resell it. It's going to live here forever. I mean – with, with some tweaks. And so we're going to compensate you. And so you're not going to get a steady supply of money down the years if this is a hit. So we're just going to pay you up front and we're going to overpay you. Correct. Obviously, that was never going to be permanent, but they needed to do that to get off the ground. That's still – you're still essentially getting paid up front, right? Right. One time. They, one bought, time. Out, they bought out the back end such that – you know, the, the Larry David style paydays for Seinfeld would not really exist because Netflix sort of bought out all these rights. Now, on some of those early shows, they were controlled by other media yes. companies, which could sit and resell them, yada, yada, yada. There was at least a little bit of a syndication market. But writers, directors, others get paid. There's sort of a formula for the equivalent of residuals in a streaming world. And most people feel that, that what they get paid for the, the residuals in streaming are way, way, way below what they were in the linear model. Now, those numbers are almost certainly going to go up. It's just a question of how much. The exception to that, or the caveat to that, I should say, given what you just said about um, kind of Netflix and other streaming services and buying up front, is that streaming services have historically treated almost everything like a sort of modest hit, right? Where you got paid extra no matter what. So the, you, there was, a, there was a, a real cap on how much you could make, but it also meant that the floor was higher. Mm -hmm. As these companies have started to sort of rein in their spending a little bit, get more cost conscious, or in the case of a, a Netflix, be so established that they don't feel they need to overpay quite as much, that ceiling comes down a little bit. And that's another reason why I think even though there had been this explosion in productivity, people are now really feeling the squeeze and feeling like they need to get paid more. So overhauling the residuals is a big one. With the writers in particular, there's like there's minimum amounts that they get paid, the equivalent of sort of minimum wage for writers in rooms. Like that will go up. It's just a question of how much. And then there are like the weird the, – the fringe issues where we don't know how they'll be resolved, which are around data transparency or around use of artificial intelligence, things like that. Oh, you just stepped on my Sorry. line. I was going to say we've been talking for, for 40 minutes and none of us – neither of us have mentioned AI. Here we are. I keep reading about this being a big thing. Lots of tweets. Uh, some 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 establishment uh, publications have have written about the threat of AI. The writers seem very exercised about this. They think that uh, the studios are going to replace them with robots, and that they won't negotiate on this. I find that hard to believe. But how how big a deal is the fight or debate or negotiation over the use of software and artificial intelligence? It's a legitimate concern for creative people. How much of a concern, nobody really knows. AI is already being used in music and film and TV in a bunch of different ways, whether it's in like kind of post-production and visual effects and voiceover and dubbing and some of the things. We're going to have someone in here who runs an AI company next week that allows, allows regular TV programs to make amazing graphics very cheaply. Right. Things like that, which seem like... For the most part, net net good. You know, maybe it will displace. Not so good if you're a visual graphics person working for that company, but or for for one of these shows. But still, well, but I think even or maybe allows you to make better stuff. I think in that case, so at least right now with the current level of of artificial intelligence, it can replace very relatively low skilled workers. If you are an awesome visual effects artist, you are probably not at risk in of the losing your job. Yep. Um, as far as the the writers and directors. I hear very mixed reports. My initial instinct was 
there's no way that people are going to use AI to replace writers. Sure, you can use it to maybe like sort brainstorm or ideate. Like, yeah, but you're not actually going to write a script with artificial intelligence. And I think that for the most part is true. You know, I've heard examples. Uh, well, what about like a Hallmark Channel movie that could be written by an AI? Maybe. Or if you want an, a script for a reality TV show, those are some of the fringe areas where I think there's there is more more risk. And then I, I do talk to a lot of executives who say we're, we're toying around with it. We are using it, but it's not good enough right now. Mm-hmm. I think the writer's concern is what happens in two years when it's much better if we don't have some kind of protection in place and they can there's no limit on what the studio can do. Right. So the writers are scared about my, what happened. The studios are intrigued. So neither of them wants to give up this negotiating point right now. And it's also new that neither of them really has an idea of mm-hmm. like, what should the agreement be. Right. I talked to a network boss last week. Said, How is this going to affect your program? And he said, we're fine. We've known the strike was coming. This date has been set out here for a long time. We and everyone else has been rushing to get stuff done beforehand. So we're good. We're good for a while. Um, is that the common vibe you're getting from the, the studio side? Yeah. Um, mo- I mean, even, you know, Netflix executives have said it on their earnings call. I think mo- Paramount, most of the, the executives who run these big media companies have said we're good for at least a few months. I think in some of these cases, they're probably good until the end of the year, either because they have fully produced projects that they've sort of already got ready for release and are just waiting to release it because mm-hmm. they try to space out their projects. Or where something has sort of reached the point in the production process where there, it doesn't matter that there are no writers because it's in post or they're doing things. Certain companies are more exposed than others. You know, we started off talking about upfronts and the fall. All those shows that are supposed to come out in the fall typically are not produced until the summer, or and then are being produced while new episodes are being released. You know, if you've got a show that debuts in September, the episode that is released in November is sometimes shot in September or October mm-hmm. or whatever it is. That will get affected in some ways. A lot of these media companies have gotten around it by overloading for unscripted programming in the fall, or maybe they've banked a couple of things. I don't get the sense that anyone thinks that there will be real pain or that the average viewer will notice any difference anytime soon. Something else I heard in this conversation, not with you, with the unnamed studio executive last week was, I don't know if they were speaking on their on, on behalf of their own network or others saying, this is going to allow us to get out of some deals too. How would that work? If I've paid producer or writer X amount of money and now I'm reconsidering that because times have changed or they're not as good as I thought they were, how do you use a strike to to negate that deal? Well, it's, it's typically the studio, not the network, but sometimes mm-hmm. that companies, those are sort of the one yep. and the same. Um, studios have dozens or in a few cases, hundreds of what are called overall deals where they effectively pay a writer, producer, a certain amount of money to sort of be on retainer. They fund, you know, the, they pay for their staff. Used they to have pay. a lot of these. They've gone away for the most part. Netflix well, and they, the streamers have, have, have supersized some of them. Yeah, I mean, I would actually say they haven't gone away. I mean, a lot of these studios, you know, Warner Brothers Television has a ton where they just, because the, they're the they're the really big uh, expensive ones like you just talked about, the Shonda Rhimes, mm-hmm. Ryan Murphy, where Netflix set this very inflated market, Seth MacFarlane, people like that. But then there are folks that nobody's ever heard of or that are like writers for another producer that have overall deals that are worth hundreds of thousands or a few million dollars a year that pay for development and all of all that. And there are clauses in 
all of these contracts, essentially force majeure clauses, where if they're on strike for 60, 90, 120 days, the studios can then essentially void the deal. So that's all helpful. So the studios, the people who are employing the writers say, thanks for doing all that work for us. We've got shows that are going to last us for, for months or longer. Uh, in addition, we're going to save some money by permanently unemploying some of you. It seems like they've got all the leverage in this negotiation, at least right now. How does this get resolved? Well, the assumption is that the studios will strike deals with the directors and or the actors in the next two months. And that if that happens, that will create frameworks for certain parts or sort of precedent for certain parts of the writer deals and should sort of narrow the scope of what they disagree over and hasten some compromise between the writers and the studios. If for some reason the studios don't reach a deal with the directors and or the actors, then we're looking at a very messy kind of rest of the year. And there will come a point at which these media companies may feel that they need to, to reach a deal because they, they need new programming. So what's a realist, if you're on the writer's side and you actually do need to get paid, you can't be permanently unemployed. When do you need this to get solved by? And when, and when realistically do you think it gets solved? Well, one thing to keep in mind is that the, the Writers Guild does have what's called a strike fund where they have money to pay people who are unemployed to try to kind of tide them over. And the answer to, to your question obviously depend, varies on, on or depends on sort of the situation of the writer, right? The wealthy people don't care because they can go a year or two without working. The, the person who's actually being affected most by the strike and who's most interested in striking are sort of one and the same, which is another one of the ironies of it. You know, my best guess has, has been sort of fall all along. You know, if you assume that the, the Directors Guild and, the, and SAG, the Actors Guild, get resolved like end of June, let's say. I think that's when the expiration date is on their contracts. Um, you can probably add, you know, a month from that to or, or two to when the writers could conceivably do a deal. But I have not met anyone who thinks it'll be f sorted out before August. I also have not met anyone who thinks it will stretch into next year. So it's somewhere in that sort of August to November range. All got to come together in the fall. 2007, 2008 writer's strike, that was the beginning of the YouTube era. I don't think most people were paying attention to digital media. And the, it led to a huge boom in reality. Boom to reality. Do you imagine there'll be any permanent shifts in, in the industry as a result of this? I don't know the answer. I, I've been asked it and I, I you know, the, the reality boom already happened. The UGC boom for, in a lot of ways, already happened. It doesn't feel like we're, you know, the thing that- Like the idea that like, oh, there won't be late night TV programming. Well, people have stopped watching late night TV for years. That That's, the audience for that's dropped by like 40%. Yeah, and I don't know that it's, you know, maybe it'll drop even more on the other side of it. And so, sure- It'll probably be things like that, like kind of traditions and linear. T It'll be like the pandemic, I guess. And it could be like the pandemic in that trends that were already happening got accelerated. So there's been a lot of discussion about whether linear networks will get rid of primetime programming in the 10 p.m. Mm -hmm. hour. That does not affect my life at all because I've never watched or it'll, it's been many years yes. since I watched live TV at 10 p.m. There are people who still do it and they, this could be the, the moment where they just decide on the other side of it, we're not going to go back to it. But if you think back to 0708, that 
the brand new things were basically Netflix and YouTube sort of streaming and UGC. The thing, the equivalent of that now is is AI and back to our, our conversation, it doesn't feel like we're going to, you know, wake up in six months and all of a sudden artificial intelligence is yep. going to be writing a third of the television. Um, so I, it, that was really pre-streaming for Netflix too. That was really, that was very much the DVD era and those were just television shows that were already paid for. And when yeah, you were subscribing was, to Netflix, you were just generating more money for the people who made those TV shows. Yeah. Um, so I don't know that we're going to see uh, as dramatic or – at least in the short term, I'm sure there will be, you know, if we fast forward to 2038, the TV business will look very, very different then than it does now. So old. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't, I, I'm, I'm not going to pretend I know all the changes. When I bring you in for these podcasts or we do them over the phone or Zoom, we talk about lots of different industries. We've spent almost all this time on TV, but I do want to ask you about movies. It's May. We've been hearing for years that the movie industry was going to come back. It seems like this year, at least in volume, there's going to be lots and lots of opportunities to go to the theaters. Um, whenever a movie does well, I read a headline in the trade saying the movies are back. People flock to X number to this movie or that movie. Are movies back? Are they back to pre-pandemic levels? And if not, will they ever get there? They are not back to pre-pandemic levels. They may get there in the next couple of years. Uh, there have been there's a more consistent output of big movies now than there there has been at any point since the pandemic kind of the summer is is very crowded with big movies we've got this guardians of the galaxy movie that's doing really well right now the new fast and furious movie comes out this weekend i believe the little mermaid live action movie comes out a week after that and so it it looks healthier than it has in a while is and the per capita that's that's I think the valuable way to to measure this stuff. You right? mean the amount of times people go to a yes. movie? Because uh, that has been going down for decades. Yeah, um, that has nothing to do with the pandemic. That has to do with the way we consume media. Yeah, I don't. I don't, haven't seen sort of the latest numbers on that. Say in the last like year, there's a movie lobbying group that usually puts out some number on that uh, at at the end of every year. So I'll be curious to see what that looks like at the end of this year. But ticket sales, to your point, in general have remain pretty low. Um, ticket prices have gone up and the movie business is still fairly feast or famine. I mean, the, the question that a lot of people have is you have these movies like Top Gun last year or the new Avatar or so far this year, Super Mario Brothers that sort of become viral moments, much like we associate on the internet where everyone has to go see something mm -hmm. or in a much smaller way, like everything everywhere all at once or Parasite or that type of movie. There's less certainty of the kind of the middle movie or the the since we were talking about per capita attendance just sort of the the, the casual i'm going to go on a friday to see something a new movie. that's out yeah there's such a desire on the part of studios and theaters and journalists who love movies like and filmmakers to bring, bring that, that idea yeah. back there is very little evidence that it is coming back i i i'm an exception to this rule i go to the, i went to i go to the movies like twice a month but for most people, they will go for the big event and not the other thing. They don't say, let's go to the movies this weekend. They might say, oh, Avatar 2 is out. I heard that was good or at least very long. Let's go see it. But there is a, a, a hope that if studios make more of those movies and put them in theaters and sort of slightly move away from some of these sequels and tentpoles – that or, or like, complement That them. all seems like wish casting, though. I, 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 for the most part, agree. Other than every once in a while, you have 
one of these movies that does well and people like when you have an Elvis that does pretty well or the A Man Called Otto, the Tom Hanks movie that does pretty well, you wonder, can it happen more often? Companies like Apple and Amazon are now spending a bunch of money on movies that they're going to put in theaters. And I'll be very curious how that investment nets out in like two or three years. Lucas Shaw, so good to do this with you. Um, so good to do it with you in person. Thank you for coming. I'm sure I will talk to you before the end of the year. Thanks to Jelani and Travis for producing the show, to our advertisers for bringing it to you for free, like it always is. It probably always will be. This is Recode Media. See you soon. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.